with Paizo, the No Direction Network, welcomes you to our PaizoCon Online 2020 seminar coverage. While you enjoy your PaizoCon Online 2020 seminar recordings, remember that these were recorded online and that some minor audio and connection issues are to be expected. All right. Uh, welcome, everybody. I hope everyone's having a good PaizoCon Online 2020. This is the Ask the Paizo Game Masters panel. Uh, I'm James Case, organized play developer. And we have Luis. Hey, I'm Luis Loza. I'm the Pathfinder developer that works on the Lost Omens line. And here we have Thirsty. Hi, I'm Thurston Hillman. I'm the Starfinder Society developer. Uh, if you're looking at the window, I am not Luis, but but I, I will take his name temporarily. Hello. <laughs> and uh, last here we have Ianara. Hi, I'm Ianara Nitvedad. I am one of the editors here at Paizo. It's my first Paizo con, so I'm really excited to be able to speak here, too. All right. Um, so here at the Ask the Paizo Jams panel, we're going to just talk a little bit about game mastering. Um, what does a game master do? What are ways that you can try and uh, make your game better? What are some things that might come up that might be little bits of trouble that you can help to resolve? Um, so we'll just go through them. Uh, we'll be looking at some questions uh, here and there and again at the end. So um, just be sure to drop those into the chat and we'll pull them out. So let's get started. Um, first of all, like what, what is a game master? What do they do, for instance? Uh, thirsty. The game master is the person who works with the players to facilitate the game that they're playing. Throw me <laughs> on the spot, why don't you? Ha <laughs> ha. Excellent can dancer. Yes. Um, so let's get started. Uh, you you want to play a game with some of your friends, and uh, you're the game master. You're on the spot. Uh, can we go to the slide, please? Okay. Um, so yeah, uh, when you're, so when you're game mastering, your job is to, uh, get it together, uh, sort of run the game, navigate the world and all that kind of stuff. So, um, when you're getting the group together, what are some of the like logistical things that come into this? Uh, can we go to the next slide? Uh, and Luis. Um, how would you say, like, what are some of the ways you can run a game? I mean, we have in-person a lot, and obviously as the, you know, as we're all going with this con right now, we also have a lot of online options and that sort of thing. So, Luis, I know you've done a lot of, like, Roll20 kind of stuff. Can you sort of speak to the different kinds of games you might be running? So, uh, I think, obviously, the two big things are in-person games where you and all the players are sitting at the table, making characters, rolling dice, doing the, the whole shebang all, all together, uh, having that same energy uh, of being around each other to feed off of. And then there's the virtual option where, depending on how intricate you want to get with it, it can become a almost fully automated process that kind of drops that veil uh, of 
the internet being in there uh, to to make it easier to play online. Sometimes you you know you will have to deal with the fact that you're dealing with virtual tokens and all that stuff. But yeah, you're you're playing online or you're playing in person. Sometimes I've seen groups actually do a mix of both, where you have most people at the table, but you have one person who's skyped in or or something like that. Uh, those are the two big things. The other real big option you have, depending, uh, it is a, a virtual method, is play-by-post, where there is a, a GM who will run a game and using forums or chat programs like Discord can then ask players to kind of play in at, as they like, at, as time accommodates for, for them uh, on that. So if you have groups that can get together all the time, online play or in-life play works, or sometimes that doesn't work, and maybe play-by-post is the way to go, to. Cool, yeah. Um, certainly, most of us think about playing in, around the table and that sort of thing, but yeah, we have a lot of online options as well. Have Inara or Thirsty, have either of you done, what do you think that your uh, sort of mix of game mastering has been? Mostly in person, mostly through other methods, just to kind of get a sense. I this point, I believe my game mastering kind of fraction or ratio of in-person to online or uh, essentially distant has been probably 20 to 80 percent. Uh, I started off with live game, uh, live games and doing game mastering there when I was in high school. But as college happens and you meet people during college, sometimes over long distances, it became really uh, easy, I think, to just have those distant games. And I've met a lot of a lot of players and a lot of people over that method and also had gotten a number of very long term games as a result. Yeah. Thirsty? Oh, oh, you know, I am all about the uh, the online lately. Um, I, I've run tons of home games throughout my life, but now I've been switching more and more to online. I used to do a stream game, uh, actually on the, the official Paizo uh, channel. I ran uh, the, the Pungent Crawl, well, GM'd it uh, along with a crew there. And then I've actually been getting into a bunch of different online games right now that I'm super excited for, some projects in the works, um, which has really like helped me meet new people, branch out, try different games as well. Uh, I know right now I'm running like a Pathfinder second ed game that was a home game, but we've now switched to Roll20. And it's, it's super interesting to do that change because we've seen like, oh man, all this stuff works really well in you know, the online sphere and all oh, this stuff worked better in person, but hey, we're working around it. And and it's it's really interesting to kind of have that dynamic and switch between them and see, you know, what you can take from maybe the online tool. I know when like quarantine and all that is over where I'm at, we're really looking at maybe incorporating some of the Roll20 tools just into our base game while still having like a face-to-face -face thing. So pretty pretty exciting all around, honestly. Yeah, this is the first time I've been, uh, I used to m almost exclusively play in person, even if that meant you could only meet like once a month or something, or even less frequently than that. But I know Luis has been uh, running us through a game lately, and I've just been like, oh, Roll20 can do all of this stuff. It's great. So definitely enjoyed those tools. It does all um, the math for you. It's it's I amazing. Know, I hate doing math. If so. any of you ever complain about Starship Combat and Starfinder, you should try it on Roll20 because it is like this absolutely great experience. Yeah. So that kind of brings us to something else here, which is just getting grouped together. Um, how often you can play uh, versus, you know, some groups meet really, really religiously, like uh, once a week for always a short period of time. I know... 
in the past, I used to live very far from everybody I played with. So meeting up was kind of a big endeavor. So we went for that like infrequent, but like all day experience. Um, so that's definitely a thing you can do or to keep in mind with how often you're meeting and just kind of getting the sense of the group's needs. Um, you can also have uh, a lot of this can change based on how big or small your group is. So for instance, if you have like a really large group um, that might have some different challenges than if you have a really small group. Um, has anyone here maybe GM'd with either a really low number of players or either like really high? So like kind of out of that middle range that we all seem to think of as, you know, four players and one game master. Yeah, I run a regular group. It's my home group from back home, actually. Uh, and they've been a group of just three players for a long time. And I think that works great. It just means that as a GM, you have to know to accommodate both for the fact there's one less person to deal with in combat. So the the action economy and all that stuff you have to worry about. Uh, they, they don't have as much of an impact. So you make up for it by giving them things like extra feats and bonuses and stuff like that. But I think a smaller group, personally, I feel, has been much uh, a much more interesting game because it gives everyone more of a chance to share the spotlight with a group of four or five, even six. The spotlight takes a while before it gets back to a given player. So here with three, it's easy to, to let everyone shine in their own way a lot more often. Did you have something to? Yeah, yeah. I, I much like Luis. I run a uh, currently. I run a three-player game, uh, which you know is is super is super fun and has led to some really characterful moments, and I really enjoy that. But in my past, uh, I ran a a like way back in the three point five days. I ran this campaign that spanned over like multiple different campaigns, and it was always pulling from different people. I worked at a call center at the time, so it was always pulling from different people. And then <laughs> one day we all decided, all right, we're going to have the giant special. So we actually rented out a hotel um, like meeting room, and I had to GM a game for t- like. I think it was 13 or 14 people and like hand them all out like little duotangs with their character she's good lord was that an administrative nightmare but it was hilarious <laughs> yeah certainly when you have big groups there's you know a lot of ways to it, it can be really nice to like have that big special feel i know when we you know in organized play we have the big interactives but it is a lot of people for sure I think one benefit, I'm always wary of doing large groups, but I think one benefit of having a larger group means that if one person can't make it, it's not going to make or break the night. If you know, if you have a group of three people, if one of my players can't make it, that's not enough to, to run the game. I, I need everyone there. But if I had seven in the group and one couldn't make it, it would probably be okay and still have enough to, to run just fine. So you know, you could consider that aspect. If you want to play continually and that's something we do a lot in the office is we have games that have 15 or so staff members in them they kind of just rotate in and out whenever you have four or so available you can play and then people have to just catch up and make up for it later yeah so let's talk about planning an adventure uh so can we move to the next slide um what when you you sit down and you have a group and you know when you're going to meet and all that kind of stuff um, what kind of game are you going to run? Uh, I know you can definitely, some groups really like that, like, 
high fantasy epic feel. You know, everybody's swinging off chandeliers and killing dragons in a single punch. And then other groups like that really gritty, you know, the world is a dangerous place and everything's going to kill you feel. So I guess what are some sort of ways you can, styles of games, I guess. Um, Inara, do you, I know you said you've been running a game for a while. So like, yes, how would you Uh, say that's going? Mine is definitely a kind of on the roleplay side. I think our kind of ratio from roleplay to combat is probably more of like 60 to 70 to 40 to 30. Uh, that's kind of because I set up a very narrative set world. However, when it comes to combat, I am kind of gritty on the rules. I stick to the rules really, really hard. But when outside of it, I kind of just let them have their fun because I do have kind of this setting that I've built up over three years at this point. So nice. for so for my players, they didn't really come in knowing what type of game it'll be, but that's how it kind of developed based off how they responded to what I provided. Yeah, certainly like, you know, seeing what seems to resonate with your players uh, and then, you know, doing more of that is like really great. Um, I think that regardless of what system or kind of game you're running, that's just some basic good advice there. Um, Luis. Uh, when you're running a game, how do you kind of go about setting up what is it that I'm going to run? So a lot of the time anymore, I've been running pre-written material, so Adventure Pass, basically. Um, And usually what it comes down to is asking all the players, hey, what are some of the Adventure Pass you've been interested in playing in? Or what are some types of adventures you've been interested in playing in? So sometimes I just shoot them the list of every adventure path that's been released and say choose a couple of these that you like or just ask for themes if you know if you want a lot of combat or if you want intrigue or if you want um big role play or sandbox stuff whatever the case might be i get those together and then from there kind of trim a list down to what i would like to run because that is also very important i think (laughs) as much as i love my players if i'm not enjoying running the game for them they're not going to enjoy playing the game as much i feel so making sure everyone is getting enjoyment out of it, it's pretty important. So once it's trimmed down to just a few, uh, sometimes I will go back to the players and say, hey, here's a list of three or four that I have narrowed it down to. Or sometimes, just for fun, because this is the way you should really do it, is I roll a, a die and then just have that determine <laughs> which one I'm going to run next. Sounds on brand. But yeah, that's um, a lot of the times I know people talk about it being like the GM and the players, but like as the GM... You are also playing this game. You you know you have a very different role than all the PCs, but like exactly what Luis said, like be be sure that you are also enjoying your your campaign and session, all that kind of stuff. Um, I really like what you said about just kind of like asking with communicating with the players because that's certainly good to you know I think a lot of GMing is good communication and like setting expectations is always really good for that. Um, I know there's a lot. In the uh, core rulebook for Pathfinder, for instance, there's a lot of stuff on kind of what the baseline of the game is. Like, it's sort of a PG-13 type setting. Certainly, you can move that uh, either to be a little, like, more graphic or, like, a little more G-rated. But I think setting that expectation early is, uh, you know, just something really good to make sure everybody's on the same page. And there's, you know, a lot of tools you can do. Uh, are a lot of tools that you can use uh, in that vein as well. I know that there's um, like X cards, for instance, uh, where if a player is not comfortable with the material, they can show the card and it's kind of just a move on. Um, are there any other like tools, that sort of thing? 
you think are good for the game? I mean, I, I tend to go with, like, just very, like, thorough communication with my players. And th this will be a recurring theme during this presentation. Talk to your players and and have, have that communication open. I actually was just uh, in the process of running, like, the finale of the first adventure in my home game. And some dark-esque stuff happens. But I've, like, always been forewarning my players. And we, we got to the end and my players were like, that was really good. Um, it, was, it was pretty dark. Like, but on a scale of 1 to 10, Thirsty, like... Where would you like like put that on your depraved brains like how far meter? And I'm like, oh, that was that was like a solid six. And then of course one of my players was like shouting like, Who hurt you? Who hurt you? <laughs> um, but but with that, like we communicated and I said, like, are you comfortable if we like, you know, for the next adventure, maybe explore some more of that? And like obviously, um, it comes down to a lot of that sort of back and forth communication where if something comes up in a session as the GM, it is your responsibility uh, to, to be able to, to dial it back if someone is uncomfortable. And the, this is something with, especially online as we transition to it is being able to read your players as well and get a sense of like, if someone is uncomfortable and try to understand if they're uncomfortable and they're not saying anything like, okay, dialing things back. So it's in line with, with what you want. And there are tools like X cards, like lines and veils that are great to have as a, as that sort of um, be all end all uh, like, okay, no, this is too far where we're going to move past this. And it's important to just have those discussions early on and always kind of recalibrate. Like, like I say, we went to the end of our last adventure and there was a recalibration with my players. It's, it all comes down to discussion in, in my mind. Yeah, and I think that that highlight, especially as so many groups now are moving online, is really important. You know, if you're in person with somebody in a room, uh, you know, there's you can get a lot more information from you know body language, that sort of thing. But if you're playing, say, play by post, for people to communicate at all, they had to sit down, type something out, and send it, and that can you know just cut that channel a little bit. Oh yeah. Um, so you mentioned lines and veils. Uh, does anybody want to maybe explain them for the? in case people on stream might not be familiar. I don't know what they are, so that would be great. Okay. Um, oh, so yeah. basically like a, a line or a veil is a kind of thing you can establish with your players up front. Uh, a line is a thing that doesn't, uh, and please correct me if I'm maybe misstating this, but a line is something that is a hard doesn't exist in this world. So it's not gonna come up in the, in the campaign. It's just, it's not happening. Um, you could say something like, you know, uh, in the, so in our mainline products, we don't have violence for the children. Uh, for in most of the, you know, that's a, that's part of the assumed baseline. So it doesn't happen, that kind of thing. A veil, uh, on the other hand, is something that might happen, but it happens off screen. So you could say like, um, there isn't a lot of, um, I don't know. I, I can oh, give I an example here if you want. Please. Oh, go for it. Thirsty. Go for it. I, I, I will give the like quintessential veil example here for, for everyone mm -hmm. out there. The quintessential example that a lot of people are not comfortable, but spoiler alert, it happens, would be like sex. You know, oh, like two NPCs are really into each other. Hey, maybe like something's going to happen. All right. We are not actually going to sit here and discuss the intricacies of this for a while. Veil happens off screen. We acknowledge it happens. We move on. Whereas it's something, black. yeah, like like child violence is something like, no, we're not going to put that in a product. Yeah. 
So just those uh, lines of communication, establishing things early, uh, always good. So let's talk about what you can do to help you like actually construct your game. So can we move to the next slide, please? Um, so when you are prepping your thing, what are some of the resources you can do? Um, Luis, I know you talked about you've been running a lot of pre-made uh, adventures, pre-written things lately. That's sort of, you know, if you talk about uh, GM resources, that's kind of a top example right there. It's like not only do you have all the bits and pieces, but you have them in a narrative together and that kind of thing. Um, so like what when you guys are sitting down to like uh, prep for the next session, what are some of the resources that you all rely on? So, uh, Yenora. Uh, I have a campaign Bible. Uh, yes. Essentially, it's a compilation of my notes, a compilation of my brainstorming ideas. Things players say that I think are really cool, like, oh, the villain is going to be that. Well, that's a lot cooler than what I thought it'd be, so let's make it that. And just little notes like that, that I want to put in and maybe utilize for a later time. And kind of as an adjacent to that, if your players take notes, maybe asking for their notes is also really handy for uh, prepping. Because you never know how they really receive the information or anything that you do in-game. That's that's their perspective on it. And kind of being able to prep from how they took it or how they uh, interpreted your words can be helpful in the future and possibly avoid confusion. Yeah, I really like the idea of sort of seeing what the players are getting from it. Uh, I know that there have definitely been times where I put you as NPC and I was like, this is going to be a, a tough NPC. He's going to be really scary and really awesome. And then I think he just came off like really kind of silly or uh, kind of like comic relief character sort of a thing. And that's what my players saw. It's what they resonated with. And I'm like, okay, he is now a comic relief villain and I'm going to pivot and that's okay. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> um, so definitely having a setting Bible, that kind of thing. I really like to, at the start of the next session, rather than my recapping, I also like to ask one of the players to recap because mm -hmm. usually they take better notes than I do anyways, and it's a way for me to get out of having to do a little bit of work. But it's also a nice way to sort of see what they're getting from it. Um, so if like, you're playing P2, you should totally award a hero point for that, just saying. Oh, yeah, yeah. Give, give your players hero points. They'll need them later. Um, thirsty. GM resources, what do you sort of find yourself leaning on? Uh, so I, I, I think I, I have a very similar track to, to Dianara and how I approach things. So we may have some some slight differences. Like she refers to it as a campaign Bible. I maybe have a folder for any PC background that's just called war. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, that just maybe is how I handle things. Um, I, I find some like tools that I tend to use that work really well for GMing. Um, there's an app you can download called Scrivener that is really good. Writers use it a lot. It uh, helps you break things down very well. Um, there's various apps out there. I know some people like use like Realmworks and some other stuff. I've kind of mucked around with everything. I'm like, my latest game is in Google Docs. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually really just uh, just happy to have repositories of information. But when I'm GMing, I'm terrible in that I 
don't actually use those repositories of information <laughs> because I am the type of GM who could write a literal Bible of stuff, but then in the like heat of the game, I will be flailing and animated and I don't have time to go look at that stuff. Uh, but, but it is still important to actually have those resources because uh, much like much like you might have heard in school, uh, sometimes just writing things down kind of ingrains them in your memory. Like I, I know for the the adventure I'm working on for my home game right now, I have written down the entire background and like it's nothing the players are ever going to see and has like a bunch of inane details in it. But it helps me sort of ground myself and like, oh, OK, cool. Here's all the background stuff. So I, I do think that having that sort of background repository, that that Bible, that war folder, whatever you want to call it, is super <laughs> useful. Yeah. Um, I definitely like to just have a lot of stuff together in a folder. I remember uh, for a, I was really uh, winging a homebrew campaign by the seat of my pants the last time I, I jammed something. And I just had a folder full of level appropriate monsters. And I was like, well, if I need an encounter and I don't have one prepared, I can just uh, you're you're fighting this right now. Um, so certainly having all those materials together is great. It's an um, alpaca monster. <laughs> this is one of the things where you look around the kitchen, you fight a blender. I don't know. It's a mimic, right? Yeah, it can always be a mimic. A blender <laughs> mimic? That is horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Luis, uh, anything that, you know, you find yourself kind of, you know, using a lot, relying on, that sort of thing? So, because I run a lot of pre-written stuff, the first tip I'm going to give is to make sure you've read all of it or at least as much of it as you can in advance if you're running a module read the whole module if you're running an adventure path if possible and if you have the time try to read the entire adventure path all of the, the adventures in it at the very least read enough of it so you have a good idea of what's going on in that primary adventure uh and then i don't expect anyone to be able to remember every single detail along the way but if you have the good idea the the basic plot points and the, the overall big picture, it's easier to know when to pivot when things start changing, when the players decide, oh, well, we don't want to go chase after the bad guy. We want to go help the people first. Oh, well, the adventure assumes this happens first, but, eh, you know, I can make it work. Uh, but the other thing is, in advance of whatever session you're about to have, I think it's good to read and, and, and um, make sure you're, you refresh yourself on about what you expect the players to get through in that session. So if they're in a dungeon and you expect them to get through the entire first floor, read all of the first floor rooms again and get to know all of the monsters and everything that's going on in there in particular, because you're going to be seeing them anyway. So it's important to just be ready to go with whatever they do. And then what I like to do because I run a lot of my games online is I prep the maps uh, and sometimes I even prep the stat blocks for the monsters. At the very least, bookmark them and stuff like that. So having a map pre pre written or sorry pre drawn onto a flip mat or pre prepared in roll twenty or something makes it a lot easier to then shift into that once they they get going. And then if they don't make it that far, that's fine. You just happen to know yeah. what you're ready for for next time. And that kind of brings it to a good point where we've talked a lot about preparation, but I definitely think there's also such a thing as over-preparing, right? Like, first of all, it's it's a lot of work, you know, to prepare a session and you don't need to necessarily sit down and plot out a levels one to 20 arc all at once. And it mm -hmm. also, you know, you want to be able to respond to your players. So sort of going 
too far out. Like imagine you had your 10 story tower and you plotted out all 10 stories and they get into tower one, they find a magic item they think, okay, cool. We're going to take this magic item. We're going to go somewhere else with it. Um, you know, that you've kind of left yourself in a part place where it's a little hard to pivot from that. So certainly, uh, you know, get enough context, but also be aware that you have to leave yourself a little bit of room to maneuver as well. Um, uh, uh, sorry, James. Uh, I feel kind of leaning back into that same idea of reading an entire adventure and stuff. There is some kind of preparation where you, it's okay to kind of over-prepare if you're doing some kind of homebrew stuff or adding on to pre-written adventures. Let's say you have a town. You can fully prepare every shop in the town and know who all the major NPCs are, even though your players may never meet them. But if they decide, oh, we got to go talk to the cobbler about something for some reason, well, at least I have his stats or his basic stat block and a basic write-up of him. I over-prepared by making the entire town, but it made it easier for winging it and, and, and accommodating for the changes of the campaign as, as time went on. But like you said, a dungeon, you could totally over-prepare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out another little tidbit here that I like using, which is over preparing is good and like I I have problems when it comes to preparing because my home games are structured like adventure baths where I'm like all right and this is adventure one and this is gonna be all the content and here's the encounters and, blah, 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 and then I fall down that well but then of course the cobbler situation comes up that I have not handled and I'm sitting there going uh, fantasynamegenerator.com uh, quick 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 <laughs> name oh god what's the cobbler's name oh. um what I what I strongly suggest doing and I have found a lot of luck is you're you're not alone this is a cooperative experience with your players um throw it on them like oh you go to the cobbler cool roll 1d4 which player sweet um james tell me the cobbler's name like what kind of personality do they have in fact james would you like to role play this npc a little bit (laughs) and that like that gets the players super invested in it and it makes it more of just a, a shared story which is like really important when you're building up narrative because then the especially if you're doing like a homebrew thing then the players become more invested because they feel like they're they're building it with you and that is that is a tactic that i employ a lot and sometimes i end up terribly terribly regretting it like when the (laughs) the awful rug merchant became a central npc to a campaign of mine because but hey there it is the players were invested and that's that's what you want out of the story and out of a game honestly yeah um i and certainly that also gets you out of the spot of everybody's been there where the player is like and what is her name and then you have to scramble for it so like, I like to just have a couple of names just in the top of a list and just be like, uh, I'm feeling I'm feeling this one for this character right now. I like to think of my Bible is uh, sorry. I like to no, think of my Bible is me over preparing for when I'm underprepared. If I just keep <laughs> brainstorming out of session, then eventually I have something I can just pull out in the middle of it. Yeah. Uh, I know Luis also said something about like homebrewing your stuff. Uh, I know Luis likes to make a lot of monsters that sort of thing and there's some like really good guidelines on how you can you know make monsters uh say in the for pathfinder and the game master guide there's a whole section on building your monsters together but if you don't have a lot of time you can also just reskin them mm-hmm. i know that there's a lot of like um a lot of big unique sort of predator animals that i've run have just been that i didn't really have time to think of were just like a bear or 
a wolf and it just you know i was like this is a wolf but actually it's this special kind of lion thing um so you can just take those stats and maybe change around some of the some of the obviously you can change around all the cosmetics maybe you can do something like instead of having fire breath it has ice breath and that can just be a nice way to kind of originalize some stuff so um, you have your adventure, but you can also, I know, I think Inara and Thirsty are going to like this one, but going to the next slide, how can you take your little adventure seeds and make a big comprehensive world from it? Like when you're world building, what are some things you can do there? Um, Inara, since you're the one with the uh, the nicely named campaign Bible, not the uh, Book of War Assets, uh, what are some of the things that you <laughs> put into that book to uh, help flesh out the world? Uh I like to have what I call pillars of the world, things that I want my players to remember. It could be a faction, it could be a type of enemy, it could be even an event that happened a long time ago that's going to affect everyone that they have to remember. Uh, but after that, I think I did a lot of my world building reactively to what my players' backstories were for their characters. Things that would be important to them, things I could pull from, things I could use against them to hurt them very much during the campaign. Uh, and I just liked having the details there so that it felt like it felt like I put a lot of work into it. I considered their backstories and they, the effort they put into my game and kind of give it back to them as this is the fruit of that. This is your character's, uh, your character's families, their friends, perhaps enemies that are going to bite not just you now, but your party in, in the buttocks because, uh, you know, stuff like that. Because of things you did during the adventure. Yes. <laughs> Thirsty? I feel I feel I'm gonna have a cheater answer and a real answer here. The oh. cheater answer is that I work for Paizo, and so I just sneak what I want into print products, and then I can base an entire campaign off of it. Like how my home game right now is based off a whole bunch of throwaway lines in that Druma book I wrote with John Compton. Um which Okay, but that's, say that's some of our game masters who maybe don't work for don't work for Python. That's why I said I, I was I was prefacing <laughs> with my cheater answer. Um, my my real answer is I take a lot of inspiration from media, and like it sounds cliche, but there are certain things that you can you can take from media that may just be the most random, unrelated things because you do not have to like watch game of thrones or insert epic fantasy or uh, expanse for starfinder you don't need to watch those shows to to get your your inspiration uh for uh for my starfinder stream game uh that i gm'd one of the things that i i like had as a central thing early on was based off this netflix show called um tokyo stories midnight diner which is just this like diner that people go to and they have different guests every week and it became this kind of very similar thing where like the players would show up and they would offer like a meal and that was how they would purchase their meal and just something totally out of the blue like that became this pillar of our game and it had nothing to do with the plot it had nothing to do with like uh, evil space opera and shenanigans going on but it was a thing they kept going back to and really enjoyed so i i love taking those sorts of things and using them to become the pillars because then the the pcs like the players become more set in the setting because it feels like a real world to them and certainly like you you know even if the most epic fantasy thing it is not you are not fighting a dragon literally a hundred percent of the screen time if you see an action movie that's not 
I mean, with the possible exception of Mad Max. It's not like one <laughs> intense action sequence that just goes for the entire length of the thing. Those like little moments are really good to kind of establish story, get get a breather. And then they also help to make the really dramatic fights like feel a lot more different. Otherwise, they're kind of just at that ramp up forever. Mm-hmm. Um, Luis, I know you say that you run a lot of like pre of like pre-written adventures. Do you, so obviously there's a certain amount of world building built into that, but is there any way you try to maybe like expand on that somehow or maybe in like the smaller moments of like specific characters or anything like that? Absolutely. Uh, the um, pre-written adventures a lot of the time have a foundation for you to work from, but are not constrained in any capacity to the point where you couldn't add your own stuff or reskin it and place it into a different setting, into your own home setting or anything like that. They are very open to adding and, and manipulating as little or as much as you want. I've changed entire plot lines and, and like quests from adventures themselves. My players will never know that unless they come and listen to this. And then they'll <laughs> start bugging me and say, hey, well, hold on. Are you telling You're me we didn't Luis's get the full you are playing that for organized play credit, were you? Because if no. you were, I'll come for you. <laughs> um, so it's very easy to, to add in and expand. And a lot of the time, I know literally from working on the material itself that we intentionally will drop names or ideas or story hooks n- that are intended to never be touched again, or at least not anytime soon in publication uh by us there is one i mean every gazetteer entry for a town you know every shop that we mention happens to say oh yeah rumor is that the the uh cobbler also is a front for a thieves guild and then it's like well we never mention any thieves guild beyond that that's up to you to to jump on that if you want and make it make it your own uh it's really open up to do whatever you like you can add just a little bit of your own stuff or take what bits you want from a pre-written thing and put it into your own homebrew. And then you only have, you know, the one paragraph snippet that you stole, stole, borrowed from, uh, from inspired by that you, uh, reskinned for your, your own game. And, and, you know, that, that's totally fine too. So it, it, it can be as, as much homebrew as you want for pre-written material. Yeah. And I really like between that and what Thirsty was talking about. It also, you know, the PCs are the main characters, but it's not like the cobbler just sits in the same spot all day, every day. And when you walk up and press A, the cobbler says the same line over and over, right? These are, it can help to make your characters feel or make your NPCs feel like they have lives and other stuff. And even if it's all just like a little bit of a facade, it can certainly make your world feel a lot richer. Um, think, does anybody? Uh, yeah, I had another thing though. With homebrew, much like we were talking about prepping, you can dive into it way too much. I think in homebrew, it's entirely possible that you just sit down and plan out the entire history of the world and every single map and every single town and every every single aspect to the point where at that point you're planning for a novel. You're not making your own game that other people can share in with. So I think. A good approach for that is maybe choosing a, a nice focal point like a town or a nation, building that up quite a bit, and then letting the rest grow outward organically as part of your game. If you're 
setting it in a town near some mountains and your players never decide to go in the mountains, then what was the point of, you know, mapping out all of the cave network in the mountains and stuff like that? Prep as much as you think you need and your players will kind of guide you to where you need to expand more. Yeah, I think with a lot of things, it's, uh, you know, his point about rebounding off of your players is it's always really good. It also goes into what type of game you're running. Because if we go back all the way to the, the earlier talk of, like, the size of players, um, one type of game people out there may be familiar with is the West Marches style of gameplay, which is very, like, drop-in like drop in gaming. It's, we're in little town. There be dragons out that way somewhere, and there's stuff around this town, and we don't leave the town because there's dragons and stuff out there. Maybe maybe we should have adventurers go look into that. Um, and like that typical kind of like I don't know, old school gaming exploration, like going around finding things. And that is a type of game where as a GM, you can go all in on preparing for and be like, this hex has this like thing and this hex has this thing and this da 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 da. And because with those type of games, they're actually built around the concept of having like the 15 person group mm -hmm. and oh we've got four people in the group who can meet up and do an excursion darkest dungeon style and see what happens and that type of thing is actually really really fun for some people if they're looking for a different yeah. type of game than like a, a super story driven game all comes down to what your players are looking for out of the game too yeah um certainly you know if you have like a straight up dungeon crawl it's you're kind of there to kill monsters and your character's world and story aren't super as central, but you can still definitely drop in a lot of world building, you know, in your dungeon. Like there's a rune here that was used to pray for rain. Well, what does that mean? It means that it didn't rain a lot in wherever this dungeon used to be. So there's certainly a lot of ways you can keep dropping that in. Does anyone else have anything about world building or should we talk about what happens when players can't remember the grapple rules? Let's talk about that. Uh, so going on to the next slide, um, we're, uh, as the GM, I think a lot of the time people assume that it's sort of incumbent on the GM to know all the rules really well, that sort of thing. Is that true? No, not, not just a GM. Uh, I'm a hard no because I'm very pro GM as far as my style is, but it just helps so much if you have at least... I think depend. it's more like a ratio to your players, I guess. If you have like a group of three and you have one person that's really good with the rules and you just ask them, is that how it is? And they can flip through the book for you while you try to educate everything else. And then having more as a group is larger, it just really helps keep the flow going. And also for you that you're not jumping between notes, prep, the map, and any sort of source books that you have to go through just to figure out how something's supposed to work. Yeah. For sure. Um, I really like the point there about like, you know, if you're playing the, if you're playing a, like a rogue, you don't necessarily need to know what the wizard spell list looks like. Uh, you can kind of give bits of, but as the gym, you do sort of need to have like a little bit of a broader knowledge, but it doesn't mean you need to, you know, have all the source book memorized, all of the supplements memorized, anything like that, for sure. Um, I really like the thing you said about kind of giving it off to certain players who might know like certain parts of the rules better, that sort of thing. Um, what happens? What do you guys do if, for instance, you come up on some kind of edge case that you're not very familiar with, it's suddenly relevant in the 
it's suddenly relevant in the story uh, and nobody knows what's supposed to happen. Uh, how do you deal with that? Thirsty. Oh, oh, picking on me, I see. All right, <laughs> then. Um, I, I, think, I think it actually depends entirely on the circumstances of the game. And I'm going to put a big asterisk beside any of these type of uh, you know GM adjudication rules because really they're very situational on how you handle them. I'm going to give a big example of something that is kind of growing in our community and certainly growing right now, which is if you're part of a stream game, there's nothing more boring than like being on a stream and be like, all right, we're going to crack open the rule book and flip to this page and flip to that page. And at that point, like roll a dice and on a 10 plus we'll go with this ruling and we'll figure out something and keep the game going. Because at that point you're, you're doing a presentation. Um, if it's like an edge corner case of, uh, of like, oh, here's this thing that's only ever going to show up in this one unique circumstance. It's not really relevant. Everyone's kind of frustrated with it. We can move on. Then then, then do that. Like, figure out a solution again. I am an old-fashioned, like, on a 10 plus, blop. Um, the, other, the other sort of way to handle it, which I think comes up too, is where there's this strange case, but you know it can come up again, and getting the ruling is important. And in a home game, as long as everyone's cool with it, figuring it out as a group is fine. Even if it comes down to, okay, we think it's this way, we'll deep dive into the online FAQs and all that later. Okay, you know, that that's that's a great way to approach it as well. There's 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 different ways for different groups. And one, another example I will cite that is totally valid is... If the rules debate is fun, and this may sound weird, but like I will tell you in first edition Pathfinder, I once had a party that saw a light in a tiny little like sunken corner of a room. And they were like, all right, if the party summoner summons a, summons a whole bunch of like dolphins and we shove them in the water, if we take the dolphins out, can they hold the water with them? And how does that work with summon water? Can we like get rid of this water without ever having to actually go in the water by summoning dolphins and carting out? And I'm like, I, um, ooh. And it became like a really fun thing that we had to like rule search into. Yeah, because it was like... Because because it wasn't quite the usual summon monster shenanigans of haha I'll use it to do this thing. It was like, can I use summoned monsters to displace water so we don't actually have to worry about this this cunning trap Thirsty has set up for us? Spoiler alert, I, like I still got them with the cunning trap. <laughs> I like something that I just saw in chat, which is saying that uh, if you have to make an improv ruling that inconveniences a player, uh, give them a free hero point. That sounds like a really good... I'm a big fan of the hey, so this isn't like the big final boss fight. Nobody's character is going to die off it. Um, why don't we just say that the enemy gets a plus one and we'll look up the ruling later, you know, between sessions. Um, I really like that idea of acknowledging, hey, here's a hero point, you know, just because we had to hold it for a bit. Also, do not ever be afraid to be, as a GM, like, player suggests random ridiculous thing that you know if they could do it all the time would break the campaign, but go, you know... Just this once, because of the rule of cool, I'm going to allow this, because this is pretty epic. But don't think you're going to create the Alpha 1 tactic on me and use it in every fight from now on. I think the I think the example of that I had was a player who was fighting like a large metal elephant thing. And he was like, if I use Rusting Grasp on one of its legs, can I like you know, give it a speed penalty? And I was like, that is very cool. You can do it now because it's cool. Absolutely. For sure.
Because like at the end of the day, we you know we want it to be cool, right? I think that's pretty pretty basic. Luis, did you have something on the the whole like rules adjudication? Or did I kind of cover I mean, it? If you as a group or as a GM decide to make changes to the rules that you're hoping to keep in place, like you decide, you know, for whatever reason, you bring back the higher ground rule. You know, anyone that's above someone else gets a plus one to attack or whatever, because you you like that rule or whatever the case might be. You make a big change to the rules, you keep it, and realize it's not working for you. It's okay to pull that back and go back to how things used to be. It's really hard with a game as intricate as Starfinder or Pathfinder to know tweaking this rule this way, what kind of ramifications will it have way down the line? So when you realize what those are and maybe realize I don't want that to happen, it's okay to go back on that as well or adjust it a bit more and, you know, try to settle onto a better spot for, for that rule. It, your rule is law, but you're <laughs> also allowed to change those rules. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's, you know, just getting back to that thing of setting expectations. That's, I think, why it's really easy to kind of front load that as like, this is a preliminary call now is a lot easier to sort of mm-hmm. deal with than having to walk it back later, for sure. But let's say everything is good. You sit down and you have a great world, great dungeon, you've prepped, you know how all the rules work, and then you kill all your players. Uh, what do you do when stuff goes off the rails? Uh, can we go to the next slide, please? Oh, I picked this art piece. This art You piece did. I like great. this art a lot. <laughs> um, so when things go off the rails, uh, what are some of the strategies you can use? Um, well, let's back up. What are some of the ways that things can go off the rails? Uh, I think the the TPK is sort of the the one that everybody thinks of, but there are a lot of other ways things can go off the rails. So let's uh, open mean, it up. There's, if you have expectations of, of the plot or the narrative and the players decide to zig when you expect them to zag, that's a big thing. Hey, here's the big evil bad guy, and he says, come join me, we can rule together. Yeah, let's do that. That sounds great. <laughs> oh, wait, hold on. Hold on. Wait a second. You know, that kind of stuff. Or if they somehow get the important NPC killed, you know, even if it wasn't them intentionally killing them, you know, to, there's some bad roles that happen and some bad ideas that came along with them. And oops, the NPC fell off a cliff. Ah, you know, that that kind of stuff can, can be going off the rails. Or even just the player saying no to something can suddenly just throw you off your game entirely. Hey, we need your help. Can you go into this dungeon and clear it out? No, we don't want to do that. That sounds scary. Oh, okay. Bye, I guess. <laughs> That's our session. You know, <laughs> just the players, you realize, have a lot of agency in this game. <laughs> and it's and that, not just yeah. <laughs> your novel that you're writing here. So when you have some expectations and they subvert them, it's it could be just a slight derailing or it could be the entire train falling off the track, but even a little bit can be something that can throw you off. I think. Piratey Steve in the chat says it's not if things go off the rails. Yeah. And I think that's a good frame of mind. <laughs> like, yeah, it turns out that this game that people like playing because they get to have agency as their characters, they can make decisions and it's only a matter of time until they kind of do something that you didn't quite think about. So mm-hmm. I think even just, kind of getting that in your head that this is on some level also very improvisational 
can sort of help to get you into the place where when it does come up, and that is a when, um, there's a way you can kind of calibrate. Um, you know, right. a way, yeah, a, a way I was thinking about this is, um, and this really nebulous, this nebulous piece of advice is that I try not to give a choice to my players that I'm not prepared for them to say no or yes to. Like, always in the back of my mind, I'm just thinking they could just entirely drop this and go somewhere else. And in this case, that's where being overprepared can help. But sometimes mm -hmm. they'll just they'll take a liking to an NPC that suddenly becomes a main character, as I think Thirsty uh, uh, mentioned it. Or they could just choose to have the day off instead of adventuring. So instead, they're spending a day in the city drinking tea and meeting their friends rather than saving the world from the big bad, however they might feel. Um, and I, I haven't had the, uh, the, I'm not gonna say opportunity, but rather the experience of TPKing a party. I've come close a few times, <laughs> but nothing like a legit TPK. In in that case, I think my first reaction would be to ask if my players are okay, because that's not a, it's not always a great state to be kind of reduced to. Is that you TPKed for one reason or or another? So I would be pretty much asking, uh, is everyone all right? <laughs> That's like the first question in that in that situation that I would ask. Yeah. Thirsty? You Oh oh I I I I'm just smiling at the I've never TPK'd. I think I'm up to like <laughs> I think I'm up to like my twentieth TPK with uh one ninety eight. I really so, wish I were surprised, but I'm just not. Uh, that's fair. That's that's totally fair. <laughs> and I will say of those one ninety eight tables where I murdered all of the players and their precious organized play characters, many of them said it was the best gaming experience of their life. So I will take that to heart along with their precious characters. Um, <laughs> but I, I will posit something that I find as like a GM running home games that is worse than a TPK. It's when one or two players of the group is is taken out and you're yeah. like oh great now we get to have the uh the made for television problem of and suddenly on season five there's been a cast change and you quickly have to adapt to this person who we have to treat has been here all along uh you know what is a gm that's that's just a terrible place to be in and honestly like letting them die like that is sometimes the easy way out. So I am like a firm believer in, yeah, they, they might like, they might hit that dying four or negative a whole bunch of hit points um, and, and just like be wiped out. But, but sometimes unless it's like their intent, like if they're like sacrificing themselves or it's like a major moment in the campaign, then yeah, death mm -hmm. should stick. But if it's like, oh man, this random encounter on the road, I accidentally didn't really read the stat blocks and see that the attack bonus is super high and can one-shot you on a crit. Oops, my bad. All right, maybe instead what you do is the GM is like, oh man, that giant spider that attacked you on the road, yeah, it like, it crit you and uh, it like seemed like you were dead, but instead it's Venom just like bloated your right arm up into, I don't know, like a puffball. So you've got this puffball arm you've got to go around with for a while. And like that then becomes like this thing the player has to deal with and like becomes a, a role playing opportunity rather than the like television problem of quick, let's have a new character that everyone suddenly has to. Yeah. And especially if you have a very story-driven uh, campaign, you can get to that awkward place where you basically ship a Theseus your party, where everybody in the beginning had a deep connection to the big bad, and then the rogue died and got replaced with a wizard, and then 
the wizard died and got replaced with a cleric. And at the end of the day, you have these four random people who are not connected to the story that you set out with, who are just like doing it because, you know, in our head, this is a game and we sit down and we play it. Also, like flat out, just spoiler alert for people out there when it comes to like, here's a hint, artifacts, special items. Make sure that the party rogue doesn't end up dual wielding both of the artifacts in the campaign. (laughs) Because that player will abandon you. They will abandon you, and the rest of the players will be like, well, the campaign can't continue because he was the main character. That will happen. It happened to me. I think um, a good way of doing that is if a character dies, and if, for instance, like, I really don't like Raise Dead. I think it's how do you have tension in a world where people can just throw some diamonds to, you know, make people come back to life? where if a character dies uh, and they get replaced with a new character, that new character has some sort of connection to the old one. So, you know, maybe it's like, uh, maybe it's that character's like brother or sister. Maybe it's like the local guard who got sent to investigate that character's mysterious death or something like that, because then you can at least kind of keep the story thread going Mm -hmm. as well. Um, uh, an important thing to think about with TPKs in particular is maybe it's okay if things end right there. Sometimes the players went out in a big dramatic fashion and it was a great end to the story and you're now set for a new campaign where you have to deal with the ramifications of them losing as new players or as new characters. Or you just said, oh, hey, we died and I guess that's the end of Carrying Crown. We'll play something else now. Or whatever the case might be. Uh, and that's totally fine, I think, if that happens. You, you should talk with the players and see if they want to continue. Sometimes they're just like, no, that was awesome. I, I think it was a great story. I've had it happen where, you know, running a one-shot where TPK happened. And they're like, you know what? We don't need to see the end. It was We had fun with it, and we'll just move on to something else at that point. I ended yeah. my second Darkness campaign on a, like, TPK in the final encounter on Adventure 6, and we faded to black with one PC left, and everyone was like, that was really satisfying. I don't need to know what happens. Because then it's like, it's a it's a moment, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's a big dramatic story moment, and you don't have to win for it to be a big dramatic story moment. Not at all. Um, just, like, one other thing to kind of go back to an earlier point. Uh, before we wrap this up and go into Q&A is that I'm a really big fan of kind of like if they go off the rails you can also be like laying the rails in front of them like a Looney Tunes cartoon Mm -hmm. where sometimes the only monster I have prepped that day is this I don't know uh, dragon or something and if they go to the dragon's cave, they fight the dragon. And if they decide to go to help out the farmers, the dragon is stealing the sheep. And if they go to help the caravan, then maybe the dragon is, you know, stealing some gold from the caravan or that sort of thing. And then you can go back and sort of backfill that other information at some other point. Like then they go to the cave and they see the cave is abandoned or something like that. So you can certainly like, I feel like this is a little bit playing dirty, but the players have agency, but you also control the world and can kind of move the pieces around to uh, make your story hit all the beats while still like having the player's choices matter. So for instance, maybe fighting the dragon in the cave is a very different encounter than fighting the dragon in the field. So the players still affected it. It's just a little bit different. Does anybody else have any uh, derailing stories or should we start looking at some questions from the the Twitch chat? Uh, I think I can... that... oh, go ahead, Anna. Oh, 
Oh, sorry. I was just going to mention, this is more of a general thing, but the concept of failing forward. Because sometimes the dice just aren't with your party. Or maybe yeah. you just happen to have really good dice against them specifically. So then it could lead to a situation where they just fail. They fail to save someone. They fail to defeat a creature. They fail to infiltrate this area that they need to get to. It doesn't mean it has to be the end. Technically, you're derailed at that point. It's like you've exhausted their options or they've exhausted their options. Yeah. Yeah. And at that point, as a GM, it kind of falls upon you to maybe subtly, maybe not so subtly smashing that wall in front of them for them. And I think that could be a good... Uh, a good source for story tension later. Maybe they had to get a favor from someone unseemly. Uh, maybe now they're in debt, like they're in debt to someone, or they've had to sacrifice like a resource, an item, a treasure, something that's kind of gonna cost them. But it's not necessarily just gonna end there. It could be something you can kind of pull from from a later plot hook or later conflict. That's a thing we we lean on really heavily in organized play. Actually, is uh, a lot of the times, you know, we we don't want it to sort of the adventure to stall out because they hit a wall. But so a lot of the times we have that sort of like lifeline option where it moves the story along, but it, you definitely feel that something happened, like or that you you know you failed somehow. Because if you roll a one, you you should fail. You shouldn't fail so badly that it you know dead ends the game. But it is a failure. So maybe you you know maybe you didn't you still get past the wall or something, but maybe you made so much noise that like now all of the monsters on the other side have a bonus to initiative or something, right? Like that failing forward is a really good strategy for sure. It also works on a global level for organized play where we have this great thing called reporting notes. Like, oh man, if the players fail to stop this cult from waking up this great old one, this great old one eats this planet. Actual reporting note for a scenario, by the way. Nom, nom, (laughs) nom. Should uh, look at the reporting data for that. For sure. Well, this panel is called Ask the Paizo GMs, so why don't we get some questions? So everybody who is in the chat, um, we'll just start pulling some questions from there. So what uh, what is it about game mastering that you know, you're know you curious about? Maybe you want to, maybe it's about uh, world building, maybe it's about improv- improving, what else? While we're um, waiting for questions, I'm going to add one more bit to that uh, things going off the rails real quick. Yeah. Uh, so if things go off the rails, if, if players decide to go do something else, feel free to take a quick break. Say, hey, give me five, ten minutes to come up with something. Or say, cool, you just said no to everything. Let's <clears throat> talk next session and give me time to plan. It's okay if you need some time to to you know get your feet up, uh under you again and and figure out what's going to happen next because sometimes not everyone can improv uh or, or you know make stuff up like that as quickly as uh, other people so if you need more time feel free to ask your players for that and i'm sure they'll be happy to give that to you yeah those kind of like derailing moments tend to they seem to tend to happen at the end of sessions so that mm-hmm. can often be like well we'll just end like 20 minutes early you know for now, since we hit a break point. Yeah. Um, Code Monkey nineteen seventy two says, "Does anybody have favorite tactics for adapting an AP for six players beyond just adding more mooks or beefing up their HP, that sort of thing?" So, not just adding more monsters, not just making the monsters, you know, die later. Any other ways that you might try to 
handle that number of people. Uh, Luis, let's pick on you. If, you. if you have a big enough group, it might be okay to split them up into smaller chunks uh, of you know three or four in, in the group. And suddenly, hey, you're prepped for a party of four again, and you don't have to make any adjustments. You just have to kind of be able to hop between both groups. If if you can juggle that, I think that's a great way to do it. Uh, another thing to do is just kind of turn down the treasure that they get. A lot of the APs assume the party is fully decked out and ready to go at every level. If there are six, seven, eight players, there are a lot more opportunities to attack the boss or the enemies that you're fighting. But if their plus ones or plus twos, all that stuff isn't all there just yet, it kind of evens the battlefield uh, once more. So, you know, slowing down the, the, their progression a bit might also work if instead of being level 15 by this point, you know, the party ends up being level 14. So they're just a little behind, but they make up for it with their numbers. There's a few different ways you can adjust that uh, uh, on the player side of things that then make it easy to just kind of keep things as is as a GM. All right. Does anybody else? Percy, did you have something to add to that? or? Oh, no, I was just going to say, ask Luis that question, because lately <laughs> I'm homebrewer for player parties, so I'm like the worst <laughs> person to ask that. If you do split the party, a lot of the times what you can do with your players who aren't currently acting is you can also give them the monsters. Like, maybe they don't have to crunch all the monster math themselves, but maybe they can just be like, does it, who does the monster attack? Or just give them a little more agency in that. And uh, um, I guess, sorry to that, this is really brief, but if you're, you have like a six person party, uh, I guess it depends if you got backstories from players, but I think like one or two encounters for maybe one or two players backstories and just making it on your own, maybe using it like a template from the adventure path and just inserting it. So it's not exactly just beefing up the monsters, but adding like an event that's relevant and that can yeah. still be a challenge to your party, but still sticking technically to the AP. Um, Baronhard says, what if you made a major mistake, such as giving them too much experience by mistake or giving a magic item that you didn't realize would imbalance the game? Uh, in our, talk what to them. If you, talk to them? Just yeah. say like, hey, I made a mistake. Yes, I think that's, it, it kind of sucks if you're a player and you got something really cool and you're using it, it's awesome. But it's it might otherwise be making it difficult for your GM, or maybe it's not fun for their players that you're now steamrolling uh, Adventure Path or the campaign. Um, it's honestly at that point the GM's kind of a I want to say responsibility to talk to that player and say, "Hey, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Maybe I can give you a hero point instead, but we're going to tune it down a bit." It's just that communication, that conversation that uh, a GM shouldn't be afraid to have with their players, especially when the fun of the table might hinge on it. Yeah, for sure. And I think especially if it's something like a magic item, that's usually a thing that goes to one player. So it's not just that one, it's not just that the players are strong, it's that one player is suddenly now the star in the sense of, you know, they have some really awesome staff that can just kill everybody, right? Two artifacts on a rogue or two <laughs> running the campaign. It reminded me of that art of Mercil stealing all the loot from GMG. I really like that. I feel like another thing you could do with that is kind of take that away and set it aside narratively. If the players are overleveled, just don't level them up for a while <laughs> and things will catch up. Like yeah. start throwing the tougher monsters and, and things will eventually even out and then you should be okay. Uh, but if they you've given them the magical item or set of artifacts or whatever, if someone comes by and steals that from them, 
and they don't have it for a while, but suddenly they have a thing that they want, and then you kind of conclude and, and let them get that back by the level that they should have that, suddenly they're they're okay again, and they've had a thing that they wanted back, and they've, they've hated you for taking it away from them, and they've you've made a new villain out of all that stuff. So there's ways you can kind of weave that into story where you take it away from them in the story uh, and make that part of your campaign at that point. Yeah, you, you. I think anytime you to get back to that earlier thing about like give them a hero point. I think it's anytime you feel like you're taking something away from the players. I like the idea of giving them like a little incentive after. So maybe uh, the player gets a magic staff. It's way too powerful. They have to turn it over to the wizard so the wizards can research this powerful artifact. Maybe they get it back, like Louis said, when they're supposed to. Maybe it's like a level 12 item, they're level 5, they get it back when they're level 12. But maybe the wizards like improved it so it does maybe like a gets a plus 1 to hit or something like that. Just to kind of, you know, a four-year trouble type of deal. Um, Mayor of Hook City says, I have a player who hates flying monsters and doesn't want to fly in response, but these mechanics are vital to variety. So what sort of chat would you have with a player who seems opposed to certain mechanics? Um... You know, you have, I think that uh, sometimes it can be like fl- flying is, I think, a really good example of that because it's it's a very iconic power, but it is very much just like it's a, you know, a jump in the kind of things, both in terms of combat, in terms of narrative, what you can do with it. So maybe if a player just for thematic reasons doesn't really want to, you know, doesn't want to do one of these things, but it's kind of what the game is balanced around. What's the, what are some ways you might address that or like talk with them about it? Let's go with Inar. Yeah. All right. I was gonna say from the GM side, I can think of giving alternatives to address it. It's not always gonna be applicable in every situation, but maybe you're flying above a uh, a forest with a high canopy. Maybe there are trees that they can climb, or there are vantage points that they can take in order to address a flying creature. Or, in but that's from the GM side. If you really want to talk to a player, it's again that communication where. Uh, and maybe it's not just that play, you talk with the entire table. It's how do you take to this mechanic? Is it something that we as a table want to adjust and address for the sake of everyone's fun? Yeah, for sure. Um, anyone else on that one? Thanks. I mm, See, with me, I, I am of the opinion that that's why there is a group of adventurers. If something can fly, there is likely like someone in a four party person party who should have something to deal with that. And that should be presented as a challenge. If there is a mechanic in the game, that is something that all of the players agree. They just don't want to do like a good example of that's like underwater combat, for example, mm-hmm. like, Oh, there's a lot of weird stuff that can happen in 3d chess battles. Um, maybe we don't want to want to handle that. And that should be a discussion that happens early on in the game. However, I do think that you have to be, cognizant as as a gm that there are some tools in the gm toolbox that like players and their characters might not enjoy but that's also because they're they're there to to act as a as a balancer in a lot of ways like mm-hmm. i would i would not be surprised if the the fighter wielding the two hand or sorry the barbarian wielding the two-handed greatsword um maybe has problems with flying creatures because everything else they can walk up to and go you're dead you're dead you're dead anyone who has played the kingmaker video game and sent Mary on her way understands this <laughs> but like then then you have to kind of understand where that's coming from and what the players are wanting out of the game too because sometimes like a flying monster 
if it's difficult to deal with, can lead to a really dynamic encounter because you have to come up with different ways of handling it. You have to use abilities that you might not like think are good. You might actually have to gasp, run away, and prepare for the encounter. <laughs> I do like the idea of, you know, if, if a like some things are there to challenge the players, but certainly if it's, I think like if you run one flying monster and nobody in the party was really specced for it and it was a real tough challenge that's good but you also that also means that that also doesn't mean that every single monster you run from here on out needs to be a flying monster right so keeping that variety is important and you can challenge the players in other ways um just missed it um what's the best way to readjust a player's backstory that falls flat or that they don't really feel it in game or they don't know where to go with it so I made a character that, you know, I decided that, you know, I was the son of the big bad and two sessions in, I realized I don't really want to do that. What are some ways you can kind of retool that? Luis, I'm going to pick on you. You can, uh, well, two things. Does your backstory really matter for going forward? Because you can say you were a farmer and just find that boring and, it doesn't matter anymore because you're adventuring now and what you do in the future is really the big thing. Tie the person into the story that is ongoing. I, you know, I've, I've been the son of a lowly farmer and had a boring backstory and then it never came up again. And that was totally fine because I was involved with what was happening in the campaign at that time. So if you can engage that player and that character actively at with with the current events i think that background only needs to come up if you feel it needs to come up you can ignore that at that point if if you're inclined to do that if you want to keep the background though and want your background to be important maybe let the gm twist the background a bit if you were the if you believed yourself to be the son of the the big bad guy maybe it turns out you were lied to or uh you know, it turns out that you were adopted by the big bad guy and your true family is still out there and you don't know who that is. Suddenly that's become an interesting wrinkle. Just twist that just a little bit and, and you can make it another interesting thing again. I think the improv, you know, the yes ending is like a really powerful tool. I think that in almost in most situations where you would want to just retcon your backstory, you can instead like find an in-universe reason like, you relied to or there was a conspiracy or people were mistaken and that can be a way that you can sort of get that reset without you know having to literally just press delete and then rewrite it um i think this is one here that we've all sort of alluded to a bit over the panel but have you ever had an npc grow beyond its intended role and what's like an example of that like started the example here is like maybe started as a foil but then grew into something much larger uh Yanara. oh man i'm embarrassed because i'm really guilty of this i'm really <laughs> guilty of it as i think about it I, I i do think that when you have an adventure it is pc centric the pcs are supposed to be heroes um but i ended up creating a setting that was really high magic that had natural like it just re it was reasonable that there would be powerful people in it and that's kind of what happened once they started meeting uh, the heads of state, heads of organizations that have these powerful NPCs. And it's like, rationally, if they're in contact with adventurers trying to save the world, they're going to interact and that PC might, not that NPC rather, would have a 
kind of bigger role. They either become friends, allies, providing their aid. Um, one big example is that, uh, and this was because I was still kind of, kind of getting used to GMing. I had an NPC that ended up saving the party because I didn't realize my encounter was too, was too harsh. <laughs> yes, for for the, for them at their level. Um, so he came in, kind of saved them, and he became kind of this connection to multiple organizations. Uh, I'm going to name him, uh, he's Firon, if any of my players are watching this. But he wasn't supposed to be as uh, pertinent as he has become, because they met him when they were like level 1, and now they're like level 15, and he's still relevant in the campaign. Uh, so that, that goes to show that sometimes it kind of takes uh, kind of takes a life of its own. In in this case, I think it's not that terrible since they at least kind of like him, even though he's mean to them at times. But uh, that's just how it. That's just how uh, the dominoes fell in that in that regard. I've had in some ways kind of the opposite happened, where I was running something a while ago. So this was for three five. So like building, I had like a high level NPC built, so it was a little, like a lot of work. Um, he was supposed to be the like head of this evil research institute. Well, the players left the research institute without ever fighting him. So I was like, okay, just took this, reskinned it. Okay, he is now the lieutenant of the big bad evil organization. Um, the monk crit initiative ran up 3.5, uh, quivering palmed him, and he died in one hit. And I was like, okay, pick the character sheet up. He is now a vampire, and he is the head of the thing. <laughs> that one finally stuck for a little bit, but can certainly roll things forward. Um. What's some information that you make sure you have in front of you when you run a session and how? For example, doing a dual monitor situation to have the module story notes on one screen, stat blocks on another, some other setup. Uh, I know I like to have all my stat blocks out, but I also tend to use like um, Nethys type stuff a lot. But kind of just what do other people use? I keep... Oh, oh um, like roll 20 slash control thing, uh, whatever I'm running off of, and then a screen of PDFs. That's I'm I'm very, very basic when I'm running my game because I tend to, as you may have guessed, get like overexcited and able to improv <laughs> on the fly and just kind of run like it's a marathon and try to you know, take a take a steadying drink after the session and remember what I did for the last five hours. For sure. Inara, why don't we just go down the line? Sure. Uh, I had... Sometimes I have a triple monitor setup, so I'm, I'm fortunate. But when I do have a dual monitor setup, I have uh, my virtual tabletop, Roll20, usually on my main screen, so I'm always looking at rolls, um, character sheets on, on Roll20. And then my other screen would be devoted to my Bible, but also PDFs, kind of like it, kind of cut it in half so that the PDFs for uh, whatever it is I'm running for are up. Um, any rule books would be nearby, and sticky notes. Uh, that's the other thing is I I like using sticky notes that kind of just plop on top of everything that show me info about the players, what they're doing right now, and uh, in general things I made up on the fly that I want to remember for later, but I don't have time to input into my campaign bible just yet. Yeah. I have one of those just like scratch pads and I just am constantly jotting on it, even though mm -hmm. I usually like to use a lot of digital stuff. Luis, what's your what's your GM loadout like? Uh, I usually have, because I'm running APs, usually have the adventure, the physical book in front of me and have, have immediate access to the PDFs for the rest of the books. If for whatever reason I need to reference some NPC from a previous book or some event from a future book, I can hop onto that and, and look at it at any point. I usually... 
am either at my computer when I'm running Roll20 games or have it on a tablet with me that has all of the Pathfinder PDFs uh, at that point so I can reference anything I need. And the other big thing I have is I have a lot of note cards that I like to hand just use for whatever. I write notes, of course, on them, but sometimes they're, they're great for passing notes to players uh, and, and stuff like that. Uh, and the other thing I like to do is make sure, at least now with like the new advanced GM screen, is have that on hand because it has lots of useful tables for making stuff up on the fly. Yeah. Just I know that I'm going to need to make up a monster right away, especially because I'm running a lot of one of the a lot of the first edition Pathfinder adventure pass but in second edition and some of those monsters aren't in the bestiaries yet so i will just look them up in the original bestiary figure out what their stat should be about why in terms of level and then come up with abilities on the fly that replicate what they used to do so having that gm screen now has been really helpful because it has the, the little table that gives you a basic set of stats for each of the levels right um we have a question here about society uh, so, society, the quest giving at the beginning with the end goal is there for railroading, but there are still ways that players can go off the rails to accomplish that goal, such as attempting a different venue to attack. So, how can society GMs sort of handle that, given that, you know, especially society products are a lot more, you know, they're made a, little, they're made a lot more uniform. So, thirsty. Right so, up. I think it comes down to a bit of the social contract when you get into playing society games, which is it's not as you know freeform as a home game or like what an adventure path can provide in a lot of ways because we do generally want to have a standardized experience for most of our players now a lot of people say that like take that as this is the only way you can run and unless you are making a skill check right out of this adventure you are doing it wrong and thirsty mm -hmm. will come down from the heavens or tanya um or james or, or michael or linda <laughs> one of us will come down and smite you for what you have done that that is that is Jackly false. I mean, the thing to keep in mind is, like, you're going to generally have it, an experience that is out of the book. The GMs should make sure that, yes, the players go through these encounters. However, if the players come up with a great way of getting around an encounter or come up with some unique item combination that I clearly didn't think of while developing it, like you, Invisibility Spell, I see you. Um, <laughs> th th there's, lots of, there's lots of different ways to get around things. And so as a GM, you should be kind of encouraging that because it does give the players that sense of, like, yeah, we did it. We 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 beat the writer or yeah. whatever you know happiness they take from that sort of stuff. But the that kind of idea of running with the punches, but still making sure that it's within what is being written is very important. Yeah, and I think um, sort of to that larger point, like did the players do something that wasn't written? Sure. Did they make a check that was about the difficulty of the check they would have made, even if that check was like to swim through the moat instead of to climb over the wall? Sure. And then, you know, well, they made a check. They got over a hurdle. They used some of their resources. It's, that's a good adventure, right? Um, going back to NPCs for a little bit, Taco Sun King says, advice on how to make memorable NPCs that the party can enjoy. Oh, oh, <laughs> I'm, I, I am going to answer this with two words. As Go for an example, Gloria Estefan. <laughs> the reason I'm saying Gloria Estefan here is because 
one of my most memorable NPCs I've made for a campaign, fitting back to that old question of like random NPCs who just suddenly explode and become super popular, was I had a villain in my Starfinder campaign who would constantly listen to like just the most random, like, I don't know, I, it kind of varied, but like 70s through 90s music. <laughs> so like I, I eventually had like a YouTube playlist for this NPC and anytime I would do like cinematic cutaways to this NPC and what they were doing I would always preface it to like you know and suddenly like the Eurythmic Sweet Dreams starts playing and my players would immediately just get angry because they knew what was coming and so like <laughs> something just like that people can latch onto and know is such a great way just to create those memorable NPCs and it can be something just as innocuous as like music choice or like a preference in food something you can just kind of mine like keep mining because when you look at like our, our products for example it's very rare that we go into a ton of detail on a specific npc about um like something that's just kind of basic about that npc that like you know oh they they like this type of music or whatever because we don't really have the words for that in a lot of cases right. i think that's also why a lot of people like that there's an audience out there who wears hats because it's just like such a defining thing um so going with that kind of definition is a really good way to create a, a memorable npc yeah i know i'm plus really bad at that. doing like, go. oh sorry i was gonna say plus one to kind of picking uh and this kind of, I guess, is more of like a cookie cutter way of doing memorable NPC is picking a personality trait and just kind of blowing up just a bit when they first make their impressions, and then you can start pulling back because I think uh, it's kind of the idea of first impressions really last. So when you want a memorable first impression, you want to do something that just makes them pop, and then as the PCs get to know them more, whether they like them or they hate them, you can start fleshing out this npc they can have dimension to them there's a reason they're so mean there's a reason they're so nice and then your players at that point can choose to keep being interested or maybe it doesn't work that also happens yeah i'm really bad at like voices and accents and that kind of thing so what i usually do is like what inner was saying um you know they just have one thing like i had one who was a really buff powerful knight but really liked like baking and I was just like, this is his thing. He's the he's the buff knight who really likes baking. And then you can get back to that. Well, like, why do you like baking? And maybe it's for some, like, backstory reason or something like that. Um, wrapping up a little bit on time. So let's go with some kind of smaller ones. How much information should I give players? Should I just tell them the DCs? Luis? I think you can. If you want to have your game run that way, you can totally tell them the DCs and, and things like that. It's up to you on that. Uh, most games assume you probably are not telling people DCs because then it's knowledge that the characters wouldn't know and they would act in weird ways. It's like, oh, I, I know that chasm is DC 20 to jump across. I can't make it. So let's just go buy a you know long ladder to go across, which is not anything a character would say in, in, in the actual setting. But right. um, I think an, if you want to give them a bit more information, uh, you can let them you know, assess the situation, let their characters assess the situation and see the chasm. And if you know that it's a DC 20 to jump across and you know that the fighter has great athletics, you can say, hey, the fighter has a very good feeling that he can make it across and is pretty sure that he can do it, which suggests that it will be an easy check for him. But the wizard looks at it and says, uh, you, 
you feel that you probably would never be able to make that in your life uh, with with the normal jump. You know, and suggesting how difficult something is. Oh, that seems easy. That seems tough. Might be a way to go on that. Yeah, I I certainly like to. I usually don't give players like the DC, but I usually, you know, I in real life know about how far I can jump. It's not very far. Um, so, and I think my, you know, the fighter probably has a similar idea. Um, what's sort of the ideal duration of a session for everybody, just to kind of get a sense of that? Um, we have a player here who says they can only meet up once every six weeks, so they tend to play for like really long. I know I said that that was kind of my thing as well. Just what's kind of everybody's ideal sense on that? Uh, let's start with Yanara. Uh, I three to four hours on a weekly basis is my ideal. Thirsty? It varies. Um, but that being said, I think it goes down to how invested the the players in the GM are and what your time availability is. One of my like all-time memorable gaming moments was gaming on a Saturday, our regular three to four hour game, and we got into like some, you know, like Council of Elrond levels politicking, and suddenly <laughs> It was 6 a.m. and we're like, all right, we're going to take a break. Um, two of the <laughs> players have to go out and smoke, and then we're going to come back for another three hours. Like, put. yeah, it's it's like it's going to fit whatever your players and whatever you're comfortable with. Yeah, I think I'm definitely more on the less frequent, longer sessions train. Although I think the one caveat there is like uh, trying to play late into the night can sometimes be a little bit of an exercise in futility if you know not everybody are like night owls kind of a thing. So if you feel people's focus kind of drifting, that can often be a good thing to get back. Luis, how do you feel about your game distribution? I, I feel like uh, I'm used to running three to four hour sessions uh, for most of the time. And then I keep trying to ask my players, hey, if you want, you know, we could plan an extra weekend or whatever and do like an eight hour session. And no one ever takes me up on it. So we'll see if I end up liking that. But I've yet to try it out myself. All right. Well, uh, with that, we're pretty much out of time. So I want to thank everybody for tuning in in Twitch, giving us some questions, making us think about it a lot. Um, I hope everybody's having a really good time at the con. Uh, stick around. There's more panels. There's more games. There's more announcements and all that kind of stuff. And I think we're going to have Thirsty on in just a little bit. So uh, enjoy the con. Have a good time. Uh, roll some crits, everybody. Bye. <laughs>